So we're going to continue this morning in our new sermon series called Habits. This is the last week of the series. I know some of you are probably like, awesome, and some of you are probably like, boo. Uh, someone, a few people have asked me, like, well, how's it been for you? And it's been awesome, but it's also been hard. But it's been an awesome series. I'll tell you, one of the things that's been a huge blessing is the conversations that's been had around this issue. And it's so funny because we're already, like, we're at the end of January, which seems impossible already, right? But hopefully you've been able to take some things out of it that have been beneficial, beneficial to you right? Uh, some self-examination and some things maybe that, that we need to change in our lives. It would be good for us to change. And so uh, that, that's that thing. If nothing else, we've allowed ourselves to focus on it for the first month of the year at this point, right? So, so we are uh, on to other things next week. But for now, we're going to wrap up this series. Last week, we talked about the importance of starting things, right? And I think we spent a lot of time most of our time, I would argue, as a culture, talking about things we should start. But the funny part is, there's a huge part of our lives of things that we should stop. And this almost becomes automatic for us, right? Like, we think, oh, I should go to the gym more, or I should, um, you know, um, I don't know, what, what are some other things we want to start doing? We want to start eating better. But, that, but there's this inverse relationship with things that we, we have to stop. Matter of fact, I think the question we're kind of asking today, the, the one point, I guess, that we could take away is, do you have to stop something to start something? Or another way you could say it is exactly the opposite. Do you have to start something to stop something? Those are the questions we're going to ask. Do you see that? It's like two sides of the same coin. So it's like, I need to exercise more. That means I need to be sedentary less. Do you see that, how that works? So you have to stop being sedentary in order to exert yourself. It's just a confession for me. I'm just letting you know. That's the deal, right? Oh, listen, I need to start eating better. That means I need to stop eating terrible things. That's, that's included in the package, isn't it? But we don't think about that often, except when it comes to habits. The big breakthrough, I think, is that habits are going to happen either way, and the process becomes automated. We talked about that. But the reality is that we can use this tendency we have to autopilot to our advantage by creating good habits. But that would mean, by the inverse, stopping bad habits. Or, we're going to get to this later, how about replacing bad habits. That's going to be um, the takeaway is that we can, we can replace that process, and that is stopping things. So we're going to talk about those things today. We're going to do what we always do. We're going to pray. Um, we pray for God's wisdom, not our own. We don't want my wisdom or man's wisdom, but we need God. He made us. He knows us. This is no surprise, by the way, to him that we autopilot stuff, um, and we're going to talk about that in, uh, this morning through the scriptures. So pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the morning. We thank you for a chance to be gathered together as your people to worship you and celebrate your name, to, to try uh, new things, to remember old things, and also, Father, um, to just uh, follow you. I'm, I'm amazed that song we sing, you know, take me out into the water, and that, that there were disciples who were following after you that would just start something new like that, but they had to stop being afraid. I mean, there's this reality in this relationship that's so obvious, but we don't often connect. And so, Father, um, I pray this morning as we, as we come together that you would be glorified. That's my primary prayer. I pray that we would, you would teach us wisdom by your Holy Spirit, uh, and that would be the things to do and not to do, the, thing, the things that we need to stop doing, Father. And I'm going to ask now at the front side that, oh, Lord, would you teach us the things we should stop so we could start things that are good, glorifying for you and good for us. Um, 
It's been an awesome, awesome journey, Father, with you in this, and I pray that today you would teach your people. We pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. So one of the ways this habit thing becomes, has a tendency to have a bad rap, like the word habit is almost like a bad word, like budget, right? It's like a bad word. It's because most times when people say, oh yeah, it's a bad habit. Like if you get caught out in public doing something subconsciously you're not even thinking about, and then, you know, it's embarrassing, and you're like, ooh, and you automatically confess that. Yeah, that's a bad habit. And many times, you might even say the next thing, which is, and I need to stop. I need to stop. I heard a story about a, a person who had an issue with chewing on things. They were just chewing on things, and they um, like to chew on, like, those tags that are on your clothes. And I thought, this is strange. And what was funny was they were talking about, they said, this isn't strange to my friends. They see me do it all the time. They see me, and they say, you're doing it again. You're, you're chewing on a, one of those tags. Or, or a big ink pen. They would chew on a big, and then their friends, you're doing it again. And they're like, oh, I wasn't even aware I was doing that. How do I stop? How can we stop doing these things? Well, sometimes these things are innocuous like that. Like we think about bad habits, and they, they kind of come in all kinds of forms, right? They're not always, it's like, really, that's your big problem, you know? Um, you have this habit. As a matter of fact, I told me the story before, but um, we, several years ago, we led the um, a book study, uh, meaning book, book of, um, not book of the Bible, book, book, by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. And uh, it was a great blessing. And then a friend of mine was doing a radio show, and he says, I'm interviewing Jerry Bridges. Do you want to go? And I'm like, Jerry Bridges who? He's like the one who wrote the book. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you are, right? We go to this radio station. And sure enough, he's interviewing Jerry Bridges. And, and, and then they're like, do you want to be on the air? And I'm like, uh, sure. And then I get on the air. I don't say anything very smart, so you'll be pleased with this. Um, I just sat there and, you know, because <laughs> I've never been on the radio before. I don't know. But the most powerful part of this conversation was afterwards, they go, Jerry Bridges is on the phone. He wants to talk to you. Would you like to talk to him? I'm like, yeah. We just done like a six, eight-week study, I think it was, on respectable sins, maybe 12. I don't know what it was. I'd love to. And I go in the room all by myself. We're not on the air. There's no performance anymore. And I said, man, I just want to let you know, I'm a family Bible church. We did a, Bible, we did a small group study of your, your book, Respectable Sins. It was so good. It was so good. I just want to say thank you. Thank God for you. And he's like, will you do me a favor? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, would you pray for me? Sure, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'm a pastor, right? You know, pray for you. Sure, sure. But let me tell you this, people. Jerry Bridges, sure. <laughs> I'm going to pray for you. Yes, yes, I'll pray for you. I have an ice cream habit. Every night I have a scoop of ice cream. I don't know how old Jerry was at this point. In his 80s, I would guess. And he's like, I can't, I can't stop. And I want you to pray for that. And I laughed. <laughs> your, big, your big sin problem is you have a scoop of ice cream every night, Jerry? And he goes, I'm serious. I don't want to love anything more than I love Jesus. Would you pray? And I did. What? I'm not saying, look, at this is me. I'm telling you already. I was on the radio. I was, I was an idiot on the radio. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like Father God, would you help my brother, Jer my brother Jerry? Come on, family. My brother Jerry with his ice cream at night. And I don't understand why it's a burden. Would you help him with it? We pray it in Jesus' name. And I went away going, man, I got a long way to go until my problem is a scoop of ice cream at night. You know what I mean? Like, like, that's not what he intended, I don't think. But I was just like, I was just like convicted, like, oh, dude, yes. I mean, do you want to get to a place as a follower of Jesus where you're so, you become aware of the things that you, you might, not to say he did, but you might want more than Jesus? Man, I think so much of our lives is like that. 
So there's things that we need to stop in our lives, and some of them are obvious, right? Like people say, you guys should stop smoking. You know, that's, that's like so culturally no, and now it's to stop vaping, right? We just started, and now we got to stop, right? Um, a minute ago, it was fine. Or, or stop drinking, or stop drinking so much for some people. Some people are nail biters. That's another thing, a compulsory, and it's right here. It's attached. You can't get rid of the big pen. It's right there. How do you, how do you deal? Um, some people need to stop drug use, and it becomes questions of chemical dependency. And I know a dear friend of mine who had to come off of pharmaceutical pharma- uh, pharmacological drugs, and it was a really hard thing to get off something that a doctor had given him. You got you to stop some things, but you, you know, maybe it's unhealthy relationships. Maybe there's a tendency toward unhealthy relationships, and you just need to stop. How, how does that work? Well, as I was thinking about this, I thought, well, there's kind of three levels of motivation. I'm going to tell a couple of personal stories here, but there's three levels of motivation about how to stop. Um, the first is when there's an immediate threat to your life. Right? When there's an immediate threat to your life. I remember when I was in high school, I liked to run around with people. I liked to get into trouble. I was a little rowdy. It was fun, right? Remember when you were in high school having fun? <laughs> you know, and it was always, and I would be drawn like a moth to the light to the most sketchy situations automatically. I didn't have to try to show up there. I just ended up there, right? But one time, I had heard a story, and this is, uh, I was hanging out in Belleville, and, and that's not far from here, right? But I heard a story from my peers that there was going to be a fight in South County. Now, in Belleville, there have been some fights, but in, in, like, well, there's going to be a fight in South County at the Ronnie's Cinema. There's going to be a fight at Ronnie's Cinema, and I'm hearing about in Belleville, let's go. <laughs> let's go. And so we go, we drive, what is that, like 40 minutes to South County? Like, we go all the way over there to see what's going on, and sure enough, we roll in, and there are people everywhere. The parking lot's packed. People are cruising. Remember when people used to cruise in cars? Do they still do that anymore? Everybody's just texting now. Yeah, so we used to cruise around in our cars, you know, just drive in circles and, and aggravate each other, and I'm in the parking lot, and then people are getting, uh, we, we park, and we're like, hey, this is the scene, man, there's music bumping, you know what I'm saying, 80s, lowriders, I'm just saying, and we're rolling around, it's super cool, we're hanging out, and then people are getting out, more people are getting out, it's like, now you're going to a concert, everybody's walking around the parking lot, you know, and then it's like, where's this fight? Where's this fight going to be? Who's going to be in this fight? We're, we're just ready for it, you know what I mean? And then, uh, and then all of a sudden... It kicks off. I mean, we don't even know who's fighting. We just heard about it, right? So we drove over there. It kicks off in the middle of this parking lot. There's the fight. And it's like, oh, somebody's fighting. You know how people kind of pull in when people are fighting? They're like, you're just drawn in, aren't you? You just can't help yourself, man. There's something in us as people. We're like, ah, the fight, 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 fight. In the playground. Kid. By the way, a friend of mine was telling me the other week, you know, children are a blank slate. They they aren't conditioned by the world. And uh, I'm like, you've been to a playground, bro? (laughs) Fight, fight, kick them, kick them. It's terrible. We're like the mafia in like small bodies. Thank God they have small bodies, right? We can still discipline them. So, so we're there with like that. We're like children on a playground. And, and this is all still fun, by the way. There's no, I stop what? Like, I came all this way for this. I'm here to see it. And in the middle of this, I go, I go, bro, did you see him get hit? And the guy next to me gets clocked. What? I mean, I was this close to the guy. It wasn't my friend, thank God. My friend was behind me. We were pushing through the crowd. But I'm like, bro, did you see him? And then the guy next to me, bam, and he goes down. And then I look down, and I look at the guy that hit him. I'm like, oh, this is a fight. (laughs) You see, I thought I was going to watch a fight, but I ended up going to get in a fight. And you know what I did? No, man, I ran. 
I said, wow, that guy just got hit. My friend goes, let's get out of here. And we start booking, Woom, right to the car, start the car, back out carefully, don't have an accident, and take off, you know. All these cars are scattering, and half the dudes are staying to get in the fight, and half the dudes are running away. Monty Python, right? My favorite film. Run away. Hearts racing. Cops are coming in, right? Didn't get arrested. They will. You see, fleeing from immediate danger, it's almost instinctive, isn't it? You see the problem, you run from the problem. <laughs> Some of you guys are probably like, dude, you understand? No, there was like 400 people in a parking lot. There were bats in chains. I'm not staying for this. I came to watch, not to fight. We ran. Guess what happened? We have a story to tell, and that's it. Nothing worse. Not arrested, not beat up, not dead. We fled. Was it worth staying? Should I have been there to begin with? What was I doing? It started to make me ask questions. You know what happened the next time we heard there's going to be a fight over there? We just said, nah, we're good. We'll stay right here. I need to go over there and see that fight. Or how about this? Longer-term threats. Do you ever get a sense in your life there's a long-term threat, and you just can't quite figure it out, and you're like, man, I just don't feel good about this, but I don't know why? This is kind of an abstract thing, but for me, several years ago, this was Facebook for me. Uh, and this is maybe a total change from the parking lot fight, but I had been on Facebook since I was in college administration and back when it was college only. So you couldn't even get on Facebook publicly. So it was just colleges were on Facebook and I was staff. And so I got on because of our email. And I thought it was super cool, you know, watch what the cool college kids are doing. And again, I was older dude at the time, but just it was very casual and stuff. Well, then it blew up. It became public. Everyone could get on it. Then it takes off. The whole globe gets on it. Everybody, all my friends get on it. Everybody gets on it. And that's fine. You know, it's like not exclusive, but I'm good with that. And then... I don't know what it was, but I began to feel like, for me, and this is not instructive for you, by the way, this is just my experience, but for me, it began to feel like a very unhealthy place to be. I want to articulate a few reasons why I felt like, for me, it was unhealthy, and this is just really honest, the real deal. So it, it became hard to figure out who was a friend. What did it mean to be a friend? When people would tell me they were looking at my profile, I wasn't sure if they were even, even liked me. Um, people friend requested me. I wasn't sure of motivations. That's whatever. That's fine, right? But then I started liking things. And then another is like, why don't you like my post? I'm like, what? Well, you like their post. You like my post. Oh, I'm sorry. I like your post. I got to like this. No, I got to like these posts. And this starts to feel weird to me too, right? Like, yeah. so I'm sitting there. My, I'm like, do I want to like this post or not? Should I like this person's post? What's going on? Is this fair? You don't want to shut all this down? Do I want to defriend people? Now do I have to unfriend you? How does this work? Boy, it's all this relational tension, right? And then um, two things happen in particular. <clears throat> One is, and this is because of my role in the, in the church, is I, I love people, man. I love to see their lives. I love to see what's going on. But there were folks in my life who decided to, you know, stop the relationship. They didn't want to be in a relationship with me, but we were still friends. And I'd find myself, they'd have a great thing in their life. And it was a great thing. I'm, I'm praise God for it, right? A new baby's born. Somebody got married. You know, something awesome happened. And I felt voyeuristic. I can't be in the room with you, but I can see your life unfold. And that was all before the duck clips and camera angles thing started, right? It just got super weird. I don't need to see that angle of you. I mean, that's for a few people in your life, not for me. <laughs> you know? you don't, don't try to seduce me with your profile pic. Those, those, those smoky eyes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Guys like stretched over cars. Oh, come on, dude. Everybody sees this, right? Strange. And I just felt, you know what? I got to stop. I got to stop. Why? Because I want real relationships. I just want to force this into the real world. I might not have 5,000 friends, but I might have three or four really good ones to show up in the flesh. Hmm. 
I remember I preached about that one time here called Face to Facebook. I thought that was clever. I almost went back on Facebook this year, and I haven't. I just, I just can't quite bring myself to do it because I've stopped. I don't think I want to start again. Friends tell me, you got to be there. you got to be there. I don't know. It felt like a long-term threat to honest, genuine relationship. It, it felt too, too cl- I don't know what it was. You know, too, I was self-grooming too much. I was too worried about what people were seeing and saying and, and everything else. And it was just too self-aware. It was all too strange. So I got off. I mean, my profile's still there, but I don't get on it. It's been kind of difficult, though, that change. There's some groups that only post on Facebook that I have to text them like an annoying person and say, what did you just say on Facebook? Because I can't see that. I can see you post it, but I can't see. It's on Facebook, guys. Well, I didn't, I didn't see it. My friends know I'm the weird one now that don't get on there, and they have to text me directly. It's a pain. But how about a third kind? How about the kind of threat in our lives that we have no awareness is a threat at all? We're clueless. We just feel like this is going great, and then bam, I get you out of nowhere. I was about this, and I was thinking about some some more serious things that, that are in, more insidious that get into our lives and, 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 and that we inculcate as a culture and we don't even think about. And the thing that comes to mind is, um, and this will be a strange jump here, but just go with me, it's, it's in uh, relationships, most specifically the most intimate relationships, um, marriages, uh, young men, young women, uh, our desire for a partner, for a spouse, for someone to commit to and the way this manifests is brokenness in our culture, and I'm not going to tell you anything weird. It goes from everything like to advertising signs all the way to full-blown pornography. But it's a sexualization of everything. Everything's, you know, it, 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 it draws you in. I do some premarital counseling. I told you guys about this. And one of the things we talk about in premarital counseling is the problem with pornography. And this is, I don't harp on this, right? But it's a real problem. And you go, well, yeah, I know some people say it's a problem. Isn't it ironic that people say it's a huge problem, but it's also completely acceptable and talked about very open like no big deal? It's fine. It's normal. You know, and you got some old school people saying, ain't like whenever I was a kid, but it kind of is. Kind of is, right? And so I get in these sessions, and I'm talking about pornography, and this comes through painful discovery, right? What is it in my life? And by the way, I didn't figure this out, so I don't want to say, oh, I figured this out. Like, it was people teaching me this that made me realize the brokenness. It's like, <clears throat> what is it <clears throat> about it that's so harmful? And by the way, if you go, I don't have a problem with porn, I'm going to come to you in a minute. Because I think there's an, an, a, an alternative side to this, right? I'll just say it now, it's, it's romance, so for some people, and it's, it's not men and women all the time, by the way. For some people, the pornography is the attractive side. Still, people, the romance side. Uh, um, let's just think Bachelorette or Bachelor. I don't know which one of those shows is the one that you may prefer. I'm not picking on that show in particular. That, that salaciousness, that, that, that draws us in. Oh, uh, uh, romance novels. One time I had to help someone clean out, clean out a house, and I clean out the house, and, and, and lo and behold, the house was full of pornography and romance novels. And I couldn't help. You know, it's easy to go, oh, this pornography has to go. But these romance novels are fine. And I think, wait, what's going on? Well, the way I explain this when I do premarital counseling and, and, and marriage counseling as well is, here's the problem with it. You begin to think that this is a relationship. Like I said, Facebook's a broken, that this is a relationship. This is how it works. On, off. On, off. On, off. You know what that means? It's all about me. I can pick you up, put you down. I can use you and put you away. I don't have to think about you the way God intended me to think about you. Well, what, if this is not the way it works, on, off, right? Like I just look, stop looking. Look, satisfied, stop looking, right? That's all fine and good if we live in a vacuum all by ourselves. Even though it's not fine and good, but whatever. It feels like, okay, it's this, you know. Here's the problem. Then you get into a relationship with a real living, breathing, three-dimensional, four-dimensional, five-dimensional human being, and it gets weird. 
Like, this isn't what I thought it was like at all. I thought it was on, off, right? Like, like excited, done. Um, romantic, sweep off my feet, this is the best thing ever, done, you know? And then you take, and this is always my illustration, it's so bad, but it's the only thing I can think to do. You take this thing that you've gotten in a habit of doing, that you've just kind of started doing automatically, it's a need being met, it's okay because my husband or whoever is never, my wife is never that romantic, they never like me in that way, and you take this habit that is totally imaginary that you just made up as a normal, right, trigger, response, reward, and then God gave you this real person over here, and you line them up, and you say, these don't match, and the real person's the problem. Do you hear what happens there? You have this experience that's totally fake and artificial, something that you've just been inculcating in your own head, making up your own perfect imagination, and then you take the real God-given, God-image-bearing person in your life, and you compare the two, and you say, one of these things isn't right, I'm going to throw away the real person and keep the image, keep the fantasy. And I can't think, and this is the real deep brokenness. So at some point, and this is just, you know, you have to decide what you're going to stop. Stop the real relationship with the real person that God really gave you or this artificial thing. It can be a huge problem. A decision has to be made. But I wonder then, what can a failure to stop a bad habit result in. We have a biblical example of that, and we're going to spend some time now talking about, we talked last week about Daniel, right? Like God's perfect man, um, or not perfect man, but you know, like perfect Israelite, you know? There was another hero of the faith. This is going to be in the book of Judges, um, Judges 16. And so you can turn around if you want to, um, and we're going to talk around um, the book of Judges the book of Judges has got a whole bunch of stuff in it, but it's about judges, and the, the, like the, the spoilers in the title. But what we have to understand about judges is there's a final judge, and he's pretty awesome. His name is Samson. How many of you have heard of Samson before? Like, yeah, most of you have heard of Samson before. Samson's a hero of the faith. We know Samson because of some of the epic stories told about Samson. And we'll talk about Samson's life today. But before we jump into verse 16, because you can see here, this is going to connect a little bit. It says, one day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute, and he went in and spent a night with her. And you go, oh, that doesn't sound like a good twist in the story, right? But I want to tell you a bit of the story before this about Samson and, and how he gets to this point in his life. Uh, Samson is actually a pro- prophetic birth and that an angel comes and tells his mother who's barren, you're going to have a child. It's, it's, it's actually so shocking. She goes to her husband and says, an angel said I'm going to have a child. And he's like, no, I won't believe it unless I hear it for myself. And the angel comes and tells dad too, you know. So it's, it's got that kind of um, very biblical, God-ordained uh, um, thing in it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Samson's parents are told some things about Samson. He's to have no wine. He's to eat no unclean food. He's to never have a razor touch his head. And he's to be dedicated to God from inside his mother's womb. Set apart for the Lord. That means that Samson's mother couldn't have wine, couldn't have unclean food, could, I guess couldn't use razors. That'd be weird, right? And then, uh, but, and, and he's born. But his whole life, and they, and they do this. The Bible says they raise him in obedience to these commands. Matter of fact, the Bible records this, that he grew in, in the, and the, by the way, if you want to read this for yourself, I'd encourage you, so it's only three chapters, uh, Judges 13 through 16, so you can read that for yourself. But it says that he grew in the Lord, and the Lord blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson. So this is all we get of his life narrative. 
until we find him as an adult. And this is what it says. Samson desires a foreign wife. He wants to marry outside of Israel. He's, 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 part, of the Isra- the, the, um, he's part of Judah, but he wants to marry um, outside of his, his people. And so his parents protest this, by the way. They're like, Samson, there's plenty of women here. Can't you just find one of these? Find a nice girl. You know what I mean? And he's like, I like those girls. <laughs> Samson, right? If you read Samson's story, you begin to get a feeling for the kind of person Samson is, uh, a driven person. Well, as a matter of fact, he's going down to get to, he sees this girl and he wants to marry her. He's going to go down and he takes his parents with him to marry the girl. And this is where one of the great stories of his, his strength come from because while he's walking with his parents, he gets attacked by a lion on the way. And when the lion attacks him, this is what the word says, the spirit of God, the elements that earlier this morning, the spirit of God came upon him and he killed the lion with his bare hands. Most of our, our renditions of this have Samson standing with a lion and literally tearing his jaws open. It's brutal, the artwork on this stuff, right? He slayed the lion. His parents didn't know he did this, but that's what happened on the way. He doesn't say a word about it. Then they go and they see the woman that he wants to marry, and then he comes back, he you know, expresses a desire. He likes her, the word says, and then he goes back home, and he comes back a second time with his dad to meet the woman to marry her, and he sees the carcass on the side of the road, the lion that he killed, the same lion. And so he cruises over there, and there are bees in it, and he sticks his hand inside the lion, and he pulls out honey, and he eats the honey. It's good. And some of you are like, that's gross. That's what he did. Not only that, but he put some in a jar or something, made it nice, I guess, and gave it to his parents to eat, and his parents ate the honey. Ooh, Samson, this is good honey. And he went down to marry the girl. When he gets to the feast to marry the girl, he makes a, a riddle and a bet with some people who are assigned to marry, being his, his wedding party. And this is his riddle. He says, if you can figure out this riddle, I will give you all um, clothes, fancy clothes to wear, and garments. And uh, the riddle is this. I just want to read it. Um, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Hmm, Samson. He, he's got like this, uh, he, he, you know, he's not just like all brute. He's like intellectual. He's a thinker, smart guy, clever. And they're all frustrated with this. And so they go to his fiance and they say, they say we're going to have to give this guy, it was 30 dudes, we're going to have to give this guy 30 pairs of clothes. We're going to be broke because he made this riddle and we can't figure it out. Would you find out from him what it is? And he won't tell his fiance what it is. She cries for seven days about this. And finally, he relents and says, tells her the story that he hadn't told his parents yet. I killed a lion with my bare hands, and then I pulled the honey out from inside the lion. Well, the last day of the festival, right before sundown, the, the people come to him and say, what, Jeopardy question, what is a lion and what is honey? And he makes some offhanded comment about, they could have known this unless someone, he only told one person besides himself, only one person knew the story. And so he felt betrayed. He flies into a rage. He goes down and he kills. He leaves. He goes far away and he kills 30 people to take their clothes. Philistines. He takes the clothes back and he gives them to pay his debt. But in the meantime, the father of the bride decides he's left her. He hates her. And so he gives his wife away to marry someone else. So when he gets back, he has no wife. He has no, no, nothing to prove for all, show for all this. Okay? <clears throat> So I put in here, the marriage doesn't work out, <laughs> putting it lightly. <laughs> I mean, there's been like a lot of death and destruction, right? Um, and then he goes and he gets 30 foxes. This is a great story in the Bible. He ties them together by their tail, puts a torch between them, and sets them free in the Philistine village. And they burn all the crops and all the homes and kill all the enemies. 
you imagine that, by the way? I think that's um, the first uh, example of Firefox. <laughs> hey, come on, dad jokes. That's legit. That's legit. Firefox? No, but that, can you imagine the chaos of two foxes trying to get away from fire and burn the place down? You're trying to stop the foxes, and they dare they, whatever. Guess what they do? They get mad, and they go kill his ex-fiance, his non-wife, and her father, because she brought this. That was the threat, by the way, they made against her. Well, whatever. So Samson goes and kills those people. He then flees to a cave where he hides out in a rock. And then the, um, the uh, Philistines come to get him. And <clears throat> inside there, Judas comes and says, um, Samson, buddy, uh, we have to give you over to the Philistines. We, we can't have you here. Uh, they send 1,000 men. Uh, or they send 3,000 men to just ask nicely. Can you go? And he lets them bind him, the strong guy. And he's, sure, but don't kill me on the way. So they don't. When he gets to the enemy and he sees him coming, Toward him, they're re- they're just ready. To th- they're, they, he's tied up. He's he's weak. You know, he's 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 going to be overpowered. They start running toward him, and the word says that he found a fresh donkey's jawbone. Which I don't even know how you find a fresh donkey's jawbone. Let's just think about that for a minute. And he grabs it, and in a ra- he breaks his things, and in a rage he kills a thousand men with a junk- donkey's jawbone. Kills a thousand Philistines. This is what he says: with a donkey's jawbone. I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. This guy, <laughs> this guy, he's like the first action movie guy with a tagline. You know what I mean? Everything he does, he like stands there for a minute and has the scene. He's a poet. Then he becomes judge over Israel for 20 years. See, all that is in the backstory of Samson's life. He's had great successes. He's done great things. I mean, tell you what, he's a hero of Israel. He's a hero so much so that when people go to take him away, they have to kind of say, hey, will you go? Because we can't make you go. And he goes. And then we have this story. So you know, he's got this problem with the previous foreign woman that he wants to marry. And then here he comes. One day, in chapter 16, verse 1, Samson went to Gaza, and he saw a prostitute. He went in and spent the night with her. And here he is, distracted. He's off the question is, what's he doing with his life? How has he gotten here? And you might read that story and go, well, I get how he's gotten there. He is hurt by that relationship. He was hurt by this. He was hurt by that. But from the very beginning, he's had this tendency to move a certain direction. He's had this tendency to go a certain way. And now here he is in Gaza, and he finds himself, and it seems the way the text reads, like, and he happens to see, and here he goes again. He's off on another adventure. Well, the enemies set out to kill him again, and they decide they're going to wait outside the city gates and take him out. And in the middle of the night, the word says, he gets up, and as he leaves, and it sounds almost casual, he rips the city gate off, the city gate, bars and all, off of the place in Gaza, and he carries it back home to Hebron. Just to get an idea, so you have some context, my you know, study of this says that the location he was at in Gaza and the location he was going to in Hebron was about 40 miles. He carries a city gate. Those guys didn't kill him as he left. I, I imagine they were waiting outside the city gate, and then bam, he came through, and they're like, we're just going to let him go. We're just going to let him go. But then there becomes a question in Samson's life. How does he end up 40 miles from home being distracted by a a harlot, the word would say in the Bible, a prostitute? How does he end up there? Why is he so far from home? What is he doing with his life? I feel like saying, Samson, you have everything going for you. What are you doing? But his story's not over because then there's a valley between Israel and the Philistines, and in the valley he sees a woman. 
And he's like, this one. I like this one. And he wants to marry her. And, and she, um, they begin a relationship. And uh, we don't hear a lot about what the relationship looks like, except to say that, the, that some friends come to her. She's in the valley. I think it's the Valley of Sidon, I want to say. And friends come to her and say, uh, we need to stop him. He's unstoppable, the Philistines. How can we overpower him? Find out his secret. What's his secret? And so she sets about doing, finding that out. Uh, the funny thing, if you've read it, is Delilah is paid 1,100, uh, 1100 silver coins or 11, something like that. And for her, her giving over Samson to his enemies. And she sets about right away trying to do this. And, and he, she begins to kind of try to get him to tell her, what's your secret? And the funny thing, if you read the story of Samson and Delilah, is he kind of plays with people, doesn't he? He kind of plays with his enemies. He kind of shows up. He's like, well, I could just kill them all with bare hands, but let me tie some foxes together, right? I could, I could um, kill these guys at the gate. Let me rip the whole gate off the bar and take it all the way back to my house as a souvenir, right? He, he's, he doesn't seem to give caution much uh, attention. And so he plays with Delilah. And he's like, I'll tell her something that's not true. And he says, oh, if you tie me up with a new bowstrings that are unused, I, I can't break them. And he falls asleep in her house, and she ties him up. And then she's, I think in this time his enemies come, and he breaks the bowstrings, and he's a threat. They run away. Well, this happens again and again. He keeps telling her, if you braid my hair into a loom, I can't, and then she does it. And she says, Samson, wake up. The, the Samson, I keep adding the P in there, by the way. Samson, wake up. The, the enemy's upon us, the Philistines. And he would, just gets up, and he's unfettered, unfettered. And it says that she did this day after day. This begins to sound familiar, until finally Samson says, well, here's the truth. I'm a Nazarite from birth. I've never... Uh, I, I, I'm not supposed to eat unclean food. I'm not supposed to drink. I'm not supposed to have my hair cut. No razors touch my head. And that's my secret. And Delilah doesn't trust me at this point, so she tries it. She has a servant shave his head while he's asleep. It says he fell asleep in her lap, which is interesting. He's comforted. He's, where he, he's, he's, he's satisfied. I've got what I've always wanted. And lo and behold, she says, the enemy is upon you. And he stands up, and the word says, he thought he would go as before, but he doesn't realize, and this is what the word says, the Lord has left him. He has no awareness that his continual games and his continual hubris and his continual playing with his enemies has exposed him. And the Lord's strength is not there. And so now this great warrior, this great man of God, this great judge of Israel is led away. It says they took him by the hand and led him back to Gaza. Isn't that interesting? So you have Samson now in chains. I think they even says bronze chains. I think bronze is bronze even strong. I don't know how that works. Metallurgy. But they're led away. What a story. What a story. I have a question for you. Could you see this pattern in Samson's life? I mean, could you see the problem coming? It seems to me that he has the same problem at the beginning as at the end. His parents beg and plead him, don't, Samson, don't. Don't do this. But he cannot be deterred. It's worked out before. I can do it again. This is all fine. It didn't go perfectly, but it's not as bad as it could have been. Never mind all the death and carnage around him. No mind all the other people affected. He continues on his way. How do you get 40 miles from home, ripping the gates off of enemy doors? How do you get 40 miles from home, completely distracted from your people? It's the way we do everything in life, one step at a time. 
The word says that he had big bounded steps, right? He bounded when he went places. But the reality is it was one bound at a time. Every part of the story we read. As a matter of fact, when we see Delilah trying to tempt Samson into giving away his God-given power, it's like watching a movie and we're like, don't do it, Samson, don't do it. If there are bad guys in the story, it's the Philistines. And if there's a good guy, it's Samson. And we're just waiting for the good guy's story. And we're like, Samson, no. We're screaming at our TVs, don't do it. And then he does, and our worst fears are realized He's handed over to the enemy, weak, incapable. As a matter of fact, it says that they started using him to churn out the grain. He was just a toy. But here's something else I want to say. Because see, the cautionary tale could be, do you see the danger in your own life coming? Are you aware of it? But the danger could be, you could think, well, you know, I don't have that problem, not like that. But here's the truth. We're like the Philistines, too. We want to read this as Philistines are bad, Samson's good, now Samson's got, you know, this is what's really wild. In, uh, in 1625, this is what the word says. While the Philistines were still in high spirits, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. So here you have Samson in captivity. They've taken their enemy. He's in their hands. And they've begun to be so used. They're having a celebration, worshiping their God. They think, they, they think delivered Samson into him. They think that their God has won. And the Philistines play with him, their enemy, this guy who's killed so many people. And they invite him into the place they're having the party. And like, bring him right here in the middle. This is going to be funny. This is going to be funny. You guys watch, watch. It's going to be funny. And they bring Samson right in the middle of the party. See, we're the Philistines. This guy can't hurt us. This can't affect me. I'm not like that. We won. But you know the story. They didn't realize that while Samson had been imprisoned, his hair began to grow. They didn't realize that he began to um, sense God's purpose for his life. They didn't realize that something that God had said at the beginning was going to still be true at the end. So the story goes. So what's the application how does this really matter in our life? You go, oh, that's great, Bill. Stop. How do I stop something? I've, I've given you a couple of clues already, right? The people around us who are going, dude, you need to stop. Girl, you need to stop. This isn't good. You need to think about some things. There's some biblical passages that we can use to uh, show this, but I want to remind you, well, I'll, I'll pull it in a minute, but we have the habit loop where it's like trigger, uh, response, reward. Remember that loop? Trigger, response, reward. So here's one thing that the scriptures say. I'm going to turn there. Proverbs 4, 14 and 15. This is like, I feel like it's written for, Saul, uh, for, um, for uh, Samson. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil people. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn from it and listen to the last words and go on your way. This isn't good. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Stay on your path. Know where you're heading. Don't walk in the way of evil people. This is a warning given, Solomon says, to the people for wisdom. Dale mentioned earlier, we want knowledge. We do want knowledge. I agree. But we need wisdom to discern right from wrong, to keep our feet on the right path. So don't do it. Don't walk in that way. Or here's another one. Um, Proverbs 13, 20. I'll push that twice. Oh, there it was. It was already up there. 
He who walks in the way, wait, 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 wait. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. And I would love, I've, I've had both those experiences in life, you know, I hope you have too. But man, I hope for less of the second and more of the first, right? A few weeks ago I said to you, uh, what do you do when a wise, wise person rebukes you? You repent. <laughs> That's what I try to do. So who do you surround yourself with? This is a companionship issue. Who are you hanging out with? Is it good? Do you have wisdom in your life? And then one more, this comes from 1 Corinthians uh, 15.33. Paul says this, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. You know, sometimes we think we can be the person in the room, and sometimes we are. I'm not saying we aren't, but sometimes we got to be the person in the room making a difference. Sometimes people make a difference on us. And we got to have a discernment about that. Is this corrupting me? Is this changing me more than I'm changing anyone else? Is this good for me? Is this a path I should be on? Am I starting to desire, listen to me, the thing more than God? Am I starting to desire this opportunity more than Jesus, this, these, these relationships more than his relationship? That's the question. See, here's the thing. There's another um, book called Atomic Habits, and it lists this out as um, five triggers that we should be aware of that cause habits, good or bad. Good or bad, by the way, because we talk about when we're replacing these things. So five habits. The first are the five triggers. The first is time. Time of day, time of whatever, t- time of the year, time of the month. There are triggers at certain times. The second trigger can be a location, an, an environment. You get home and certain things happen. You go to work and certain things happen. You go to that store, certain things happen. There's a location. The third is an event, an experience, something in your life that you, that you react to, right? So there's, a, there's, there's some kind of a thing that you've done before, you've seen before, and you react to it. This is actually like the PTSD thing I was talking about. I mean, that's how that happens. There's some stimulus. It's an a event that you're responding to. Um, the fourth is an emotional response, right? So you've, you've, your emotions are up for some reason. And the fifth is the people you hang out with. The people you hang out with are triggers for you in certain behaviors, Right? So the first thing we're called to do is recognize the patterns. Recognize the patterns. As a matter of fact, I was surprised to hear talking about eating differently. I've read a whole bunch of stuff about it. But one of the things that um, they have found to be most effective is just writing down what you eat. Nothing, they don't tell people to change at all. They just say, write down what you eat. And the very fact that you start to write down what you eat, you start to see the patterns and go, wait, what am I doing? How come I'm stopping at this fast food place every Wednesday? What's on Wednesdays that's causing me to stop there? Or why am I having this every night at midnight? What's going on in my mind, in my life at midnight? And you begin to have to reconcile. They don't even tell people to do it. They just say, write it down. And all of a sudden, they find out people change automatically their habits because they begin to see the patterns. The second is you've got to remove the temptation. So you change your people you're hanging out with. You change your emotional state. You change the events that you let affect you. You're aware of it affecting you at all. But here's the the third. And this is where we're going to end here. But this is this idea that we have to replace those habits with good habits. We have to stop bad things to start good things, and we have to start good things to stop bad things. This is the book of James. Let me turn there real quick. James 1, 21 says this. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth, and the evil is no longer prevalent. And if you stop there, you would say, that's the command. Get rid of all moral filth. That's the command. I have to stop. That's the command. I know it's not good. I have to stop. Done. Here I go, muster my strength. But look at the second part of 21. Don't miss the second part. And this is not just in one verse of the Bible, but this is everywhere in the Bible. There's these kind of this for that ideas. Here's what it says. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. That's a stop. 
and humbly accept the word that's been planted in you, which can save you. What is our response? To receive the word planted in us, to know that God has called us to better things. And we're going to talk about what that means, but there's this idea that you, start, you stop this to start that. You stop doing the evil thing because you want to receive the word of God that's been implanted in you. This requires a relationship with God, but that's the replacement. As a matter of fact, at one point I read a book years ago. It was called Eat This, Not That, and it was a picture book. It was super helpful for a while. Dumb people like me. It's like, don't eat this, eat that. Okay, I can do that, and you do this, you know? But you've got to replace it. You can't just stop this because you'll, you'll be miserable. So replace it with something better, something better for you, something on purpose, the replacement theory. As a matter of fact, we should be all really familiar because it's this for that. All right, as we all know now, quid pro quo. <laughs> I don't know if you're watching that, but you know what I'm saying. That's what it means. It's Latin for this, for that. It's a trade-off. It's a deal. Here's the last thing then. Reward every success and always start small. I want to remind you again of the book of Zechariah. Uh, Dale, I love that you shared from Zechariah. I think you shared from 4.6 this morning. I love that man. Uh, I wanted to come back around then because Dale nailed it when he said, not by... Where is it? I'm going to read it. Um, for, yeah. The, uh, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then later on it says, who despises the day of small things? God rejoices when we start something small. Start something small. Why? So we can win. Start something small so you can do it. But you will do nothing of value without the help of God. Nothing of value without the help of God. And that's the problem in many of this. We can say, well, I can do some of this stuff, but I can't do all this stuff. You're absolutely right. You can't do anything of value apart from God. But allow yourself to celebrate the successes. Are you a little better than you were before? See, you're not competing with the guy next to you. You're competing with yourself yesterday. Are you a little more wise, a little, you know, more discerning, a little slower to react to something, a little more pulled back? Celebrate that. This is how I like to celebrate it. Praise God. Thank you, God. I got a little baby step. I don't have time to tell you this morning, but I've gone through these transformations where it's been baby step, baby step, baby step. And I didn't know, but what are you doing? It's going, God, thanks so much. Samson's life, how different would it be if he said, thank God it wasn't as bad as last time. Thank God I'm a little more obedient. But what about Samson? What about him? Have we been fair? I want to close with this, and I'll flip the script a little bit here. Because guess what? I want to show you Hebrews 11. Oh, there's the loop. Hebrews 11, 32 through 34. The word says, uh, I'm going to read the, the whole text, but that's, the, that's the, the gist of it. And what more shall I say? I do not have the time to tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, who administered justice, and who gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of the flames, and who escaped the edge of the sword, and listen to this verse, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who came, became powerful in battle and routed the enemy. See, Samson's a faith hero. I'm like, what? Samson's a faith hero? How is he a faith hero? There's two key verses. The first comes when his parents are begging him not to go to a foreign wife. It comes in, uh, in, in verse 4 of chapter 14. 
This is what the word says. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, because at that time, they were dominating Israel. What? What? They did not know this was the plan of the Lord. The Samson would desire a foreign woman. What? They didn't know that this, this person who kept going so far from home was God's plan. I was like, what? And then you go to the end of the story. And in verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 26, I believe it is. Let's see. 28. This is what happens to Samson at the end of his life. How is Samson a faith hero? Come on. How is he a faith hero? 28 says this. Then Samson, leaning against the pillar in the, in the midst of his enemies, being mocked and ridiculed, he prays to Yahweh. Oh, sovereign Lord, remember me. Oh, God, please strengthen me just one more time. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistine for my two eyes. And then 29 says this. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars, which stood in the middle of the temple, and bracing himself against them with his right hand on one and his left hand on the other, he said, let me die with the enemy. And he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and the people. And in doing this, he killed many more when he died than he ever did when he lived. My favorite translation of that, you know, we always think about Samson pushing the pillars. It's like one final heroic faith moment. Oh, God, would you give me the strength one more time to defeat the enemy? One more act in your name. One more righteous moment. But my favorite reading of that says that he grabbed the two temple posts and he bowed with all his might. He took a knee. Samson, who could not be humbled, who could, who could not be deterred in this high holy moment in the middle of his enemies. Remember he carried the gate 40 miles away? Why? Because the enemy's defeated already. They don't know it. When they come, they take him, and he says, just don't kill me. He's on his way to the victory. They don't know it. And this is why Samson, listen to me, is the hero of the faith. Because in his darkest moments, in his last opportunity, Dale said it, and I praise God for it, that that's where it starts. It's the power of the Spirit of God in our lives. Don't you go fight the battle in your strength. Don't do it. Don't leave here thinking, I got this. I can stop this. I can start this. Because that's a lie. In the moment of battle, in the moment that we need, we need to depend on God. God, right now, I need you. Here's the pro tip, and I told a dear friend of mine this. Don't you just accept that you're just stuck with sin forever. Don't do it. You cry out to God in your hour, in your time of need. You muster everything in you not to overpower the enemy, but to say, God, I need you to show up. I need you. See, here's the truth. We can't win in life without Jesus. There is no victory without Jesus. He is the one who was in the temple, who was in amongst the enemies, who went 40 miles from home. He's the one that showed up and brought it all down. And that's the gift. I want to ask, challenge you to do two things today as we close. I want to challenge you to invite the Holy Spirit into the darkest, brokenest parts of your life. No more games. 
You just say, man, and I'm not asking you to confess it to me or confess to anybody else. I'm just saying this. I want you to be honest with God and be like, God, I'm sick of that thing. I know it's not the path of righteousness. I know it's a brokenness, and I need you to show up and help me with it. And then when the temptation comes, I want you to cry out to God. Say, God, I need you right now. I need your Holy Spirit right now to help me get through this. I'm here. I want to do your work and see what God does. This is our prayer as believers. It's not our ability. It's not our power. It's God incarnate, God in the flesh. And then believe in Jesus Christ. See, there's um, ultimate replacement theory is uh, Jesus on the cross, right? Our sin for his life. But there was one command that Jesus gave, and it was post-resurrection. He showed up with the disciples, and he's like, hey, I'm here, guys. It's all cool. I received the Holy Spirit. And there was one dude who wasn't there, and it's Thomas. And he comes back, and he's like, I missed it. I missed it. And Jesus gave a final command. He showed up when Thomas asked. He came in the room, and Jesus said this, look, look at me. Now stop doubting and believe. Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank you so much for the truth that we need you, that we can do nothing apart from you. And Father, I know we talked about a bunch of stuff today from the silliest, most trivial stuff to the most, the most painful and, and difficult stuff. And Father, I pray that, that in those moments that that's not just salaciousness, but that that's an opportunity for us to be honest with you about where we are. I don't know what others are struggling with. I know the things that I struggle with. And I thank you, God, that you show up when we cry out to you, when we need you more than we need the thing that we're pursuing. Father God, would you, in your grace and in your mercy, minister to your people? Would you help give us hope that there's a way forward? Would you defeat the enemy that lies and says there's no way it's ever going to work out? Oh, Father, you are the God of freedom, the God of hope, the God of joy, the God of love, and you desire things better for us than we could ever desire for ourselves. Would you teach us to be obedient to you? Give us discernment. Help us be wise. Help us to know the right path and then compel us to be on it. Oh, Father, the last prayer, Lord, we, I feel Samson so much. Pride, ability, accomplishment. Would you cause us to be humble? Admitting we always need you for everything that's of value. May you be glorified as your people uh, just responding in, in grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.